Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, Ron, we're marching right into summer here. I mean, it has been smoking hot this week. And uh, speaking of hot, man, how about Phil Mickelson? Yeah, man, that's good for you guys out there. That's right. For us older guys, gives us hope, right? I mean, Phil yeah. at the age of 50, winning the PGA Championship, going head-to-head against Brooks Kepka. You know, so you're seeing me and you, Kepka, you use kind of as Kepka and me as, as Mickelson. Is that what you're it's, seeing? Yeah, when I was on the couch, that's so what I kept thinking watching was, hey, I'm kind of like Brooks Kepka and you're like Phil. And like when you and I play, the old guy won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what he's done. I mean, my goodness, over his career to come back and and do that um, is just just impressive. You just got to be in awe, you know, at the age of 50, almost 51 now. So we'll see what he can do with the U.S. Open. He's got that coming. Exactly. Just coming to up the, here. That age and also that course, which is incredibly hard. Just impressive. Right. 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 That's amazing. No doubt. And, um, you know, speaking of amazing, I mean, the, the virus, the, the infections are way down, right? Here yeah. In the U.S. They're the lowest since June of 2020. So half of U.S. adults are vaccinated now. So just good news on the COVID front, at least for the United States. Yeah, so I think it's going to be a great summer for us here in the U.S. I mean, you know, the infection's down. People are traveling again. Um, we just got a lot. I mean, it's just kind of getting back to normal. You kind of feel it in the air, and um, it's just it's just a great, you know, I think it's going to be a great summer. Absolutely. You know, for I'm that excited. reason. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of great, I mean, we have a great show lined up for today um, that we're going to talk about. I mean, we're going to, we're going to start off, though, talking about um, talking about how to navigate timeshares. Yeah, you know, the thing is, a lot of people, either right when they buy it or maybe later on in their life, don't want to be in a timeshare anymore. So we're going to talk about options of how to get out of that. Yeah, and then we're going to follow that up. Man, that's a great topic because there are a lot of people, you know, that have those that they feel kind of stuck and want to get out of them. And so um, you'll want to stick around for that. And then we're going to talk about how to navigate withdrawals from 529 plans. Um, you know, a lot of people have saved in college savings plans for you know, 18 years for their kids. And then when it comes time to get money out, it gets a little complicated. And there are some potholes you have to look out for um, and you have to be careful about. And then sometimes they're trying to get money out that wasn't used for education expenses. So we're going to navigate, talk about those different options um, because that can get a little tricky. So uh, stick around for that. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro with over 25 years experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm Ryan Borders. I'm a certified financial planner and I'm also a Dave Ramsey Smart Vester Pro. And we're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. And you can also check us out on our website um, through moneymd.net. Um, you can find our all our podcasts there. We have hundreds of podcasts there ryan we've been doing this for over 10 years and there's you know they're all there categorized by subject um so you can look back and you know talk see all the different topics we talked about and uh, also check us out um on our website um, a lot of resources there um moneymd.net and um investrya.com where you can uh there's there's calculators there's um you know financial planning uh, template there that gives you a great start at, at, at looking at a financial plan. And also you can send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you there. So uh, link to us there, send us your questions, and we'll talk about those right here on the show. Yeah, and check out our Facebook page as well. We post a prescription of the week every week on there. We'd love to 
have you guys check that out. Yeah, good point. Um, and that leads us up here to our financial fact of the week. Yeah, so check this out. So for 2021, you know, 59% of U.S. households made a large purchase during the first four months of this year. So what does that look like? That's like furniture, home repairs, automobiles. So that's one of the highest percentages reported in five years. So that's pretty remarkable from what we just came out of. And people are ready to spend some money and really did the first four months of, of this year. Yeah, I mean, that is great news, you know. I mean, it just tells you that the economy really is getting back to normal. And, um, you know, it's kind of a rebound from all this pent-up demand from people that put off purchases due to the pandemic and, and the uncertainty and not being able to get out and, you know, look at everything that they want to look at. Um, so it's just great to see the economy getting back, you know, kind of hitting its stride again. And, um, and so that's a great, great factor of the week. So I like it. And that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is how to get out of a timeshare. Um, this is article from Ramsey Solutions, right? Yeah, this is from Ramsey Solutions. And Steve, did you know that 85% of timeshare owners regret their purchase at least at some point in their life? It does seem like that a lot of people I run into aren't happy with the timeshare purchase. Although I do run into some people that have had them for years and, and have used it and, and really do enjoy it. So this is not for everybody. I mean, some people like their timeshares, but a lot of people do regret it. You know, when you go through the presentation, you get all these great offers and, uh, you know, if you get if you get lured into buying it, um, doesn't take long a lot of times for people to regret that. Yeah, what we see is either it's like buyer's remorse right when you buy it, or sometimes people just get older and they just don't want to travel as much and they no longer want it. Um, so timeshare exits can be a little bit tricky, but there's a way to get out of it. So we're going to go through a couple options today. And the first thing is to use a recession period. This is for those who just bought it and might regret their purchase. The rescission period, the rescission, yeah, when you can re rescind it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So this rescission period um, is a window of time when you can uh, take back your buying decision, walk away from the timeshare in a short window of time. Now, a couple things with this. Each state has their own period, their own law. The minimum is it like is a three-day period, so that's like Indiana, Massachusetts, but some states like Alaska have a 15-day period. Yeah, these rescission laws, they're, they're very based on state, and they're based on where the timeshare is located, not on where you live. So you got to make sure you look up the law in the state that your that your timeshare is located in. And uh, if you bought a timeshare outside the U.S., then you're going to need to do a lot of research you know, into that country's <laughs> laws. Um, but yeah, the rescission period, you know, it may start the day you buy the timeshare, um, but it may be based on other factors like, you know, when you received a public offering statement um, about the timeshare, you know, there's a there's general information about the timeshares. They give you those disclosure statements and that sometimes starts that rescission period. Yeah. And so you're going to want to find out when the rescission period ends, too. So some states disqualify you if you have that public offering, like you said. Um, but really, you just want to review the timeshare documents, compare your rescission period to the timeshare laws in your state and country and know if you still qualify. And so from there, you can either you can do a timeshare cancellation letter if you're in that period. Um, so to do this, you'll want to write a cancellation letter that tells the resort it's over, you know, that you don't want to do it. Um, if you can't find the address, you know, you can call and ask the resort for it. And, you know, don't take no for an answer. They are legally entitled to let you know that address to send the cancellation letter to. Yeah, that's right. And you do have to be careful. You know, I mean, they don't, they don't obviously... Um it's not in their interest to to be 
to timely receive your cancellation letter and to process that. So you're going to have to follow up because they can lose cancellation letters, you know, and it's up to you to make sure the letter got there. So, um, you know, I think certified mail works really, really well. You know, um, the Postal Service certified return receipt um, is probably how you want to send that. Mm-hmm. Then they have to sign for it and, they have, and they'll prove that they legally got it. Keep extra copies handy, too, you know, so that you can you know, send as many as it takes if they haven't received it. But, you know, you want to watch that time period and make sure you get a receipt back showing that they received it during that time period. And one more thing, I mean, sometimes they try to charge cancellation penalties and other fees. um, But, you know, there are actually laws about that, too, what they can do. So you'll want to check the laws, watch them, you know, make sure that, that they're not charging you something that's not legally allowed in the state because there are a lot of laws that pertain to timeshares. Um, and then, and you know, another option though, Ryan, is to ask the resort to take it back. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, I don't know if this works, but apparently it does. But if you've missed the rescission period, there are still ways to get out of your timeshare, and, and some are surprisingly simple, like you know, a timeshare deed back. Um, and some apparently some timeshares will do that um, within a certain period. You know, and um, and this is legal, low cost way to get the resort, you know, to take the timeshare back. So look through the timeshares paperwork and see if that's an option for you. Yeah, and you just want to be careful with this. So you know, sometimes when you call the resort, you know, they see it as an opportunity to actually upgrade your timeshare. So you don't want to walk away with an additional contract, you know, chaining you down to a, you know, that timeshare. Uh, so you just want to be careful there. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I actually had a client that did that, that was wanting to get out of a timeshare, and they end up with a, a newer, more expensive timeshare. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, they can get you. That's, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. Um, so the other thing you can do is sell your timeshare. So let's say, hey, we missed that rescission period, um, and the resort won't take it back. So what do you do? Well, you can sell it. So the first step is seeing if you can actually sell the timeshare. If you still have a loan on it, your timeshare will be listed as in. Cumbered. Um, unfortunately, there's really no way of going forward with the sale until the loan is paid off. Um, if your timeshare is eligible to sell, you know, find out what it's worth. You want to check with like a real estate agent or look online uh, for timeshare resale site or, you know, just a general listing on like eBay or Craigslist. Try to find out what the final sale price of your timeshare could be. And then from there, you can list it. Uh, you can list the timeshare online. Choose like a website that you know doesn't have a lot of upfront fees. You can also uh, talk to an owner that bought a week before or after you. Um, they might want to buy it and extend their vacation options. Um, so there's a couple options for selling there. Yeah, that's right. And then um, another option though is to use an attorney. Um, you know, if you've ever heard the phrase that you know verbal contact contract isn't worth the paper it's written on. <laughs> well, you know, a timeshare contract, of course, is a written contract you know it is on a piece of paper so it's binding and so if you've taken you know a timeshare upgrade offer or even changed your vacation week you know those are normally considered to be new contracts and that means that you know there might be seven eight individual contracts kind of wrapped around you you know on this timeshare that you own and so you have to kind of you know separate each one of those and you have to be able to you know get out of those separately and uh, to do that, you know, it, it's pretty impossible to do that on your own sometimes. So you, you might need an attorney to help you work your way out of those contracts. Exactly. And you want to find someone who specializes in contract law and has successfully gotten people out of timeshares. 
um, not just any lawyer, but someone who might actually work uh, with getting people out of timeshares or contracts. Another thing you could do is use a timeshare exit company. Um, you know, this is even better than an attorney because this is what these companies do full time is help people get out of their contracts. And we just talked about, you know, there's a lot of different contracts and it can take a long time to actually get out of um, your timeshare. So you want to work with someone that has experience, maybe like timeshare exit team. And there's a few others that could actually help you um, get out of that timeshare. You want to use someone that has a proven track record and has helped lots of people get out of their timeshares. Yeah, that's right. Of course, that's not free, unfortunately, <laughs> Ryan. You know, the timeshare exit company is is pretty expensive route to go. Um, so you're gonna have to weigh the cost, you know, versus the benefit. But on average, it costs like five to six thousand dollars. They're saying here, and it takes twelve to eighteen months to get out of your timeshare contract using an exit company. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, but the cost and and the time frame, you know, can vary depending on a lot of factors. But, you know, certainly may be worth it if you're paying, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, expensive maintenance fee that you don't you don't get the value out of every year. Exactly. And like I just mentioned, you know, there can be multiple contracts, so it could take a while. Um, so, you know, like I said, it can be expensive. It can be hard to get out of and take some time. But the question is, is it worth it? And, you know, yeah, if you want out of it, you'll be happy you did. Um, you'll likely pay a few thousand dollars, like we just mentioned, to get out of that timeshare. But you'll recoup the costs over over time. So let's just break it down real quick. In 2019, the average timeshare maintenance fee was $1,000 per year. Fees increased by 5% each year on average. So although it costs a few thousand dollars to get out of a timeshare after five to six years, you know, it's going to pay for itself. Um, and so and also you'll you know have the freedom to be able to pay for cash for vacations and save that up over time. So, yeah, it is worth it. Yeah, so if you feel kind of stuck in those timeshares, I mean, you know, there is hope. I mean, you can get out of it. Um, it takes some effort, um, but even after you've had it for years and years, you know, there are exit companies and there are ways to get out of it. So, um, yeah, it's a great topic, and I think there's a lot of people that would appreciate that kind of information because it's it's easy to get in one that you're not happy with, and, um, you know, you want to pursue whatever avenues necessary to get out of it. So. Good topic. And that leads us up here, though, to the question of the week. And that is, um, question came in this week. You know, if I sell my previous house that I've owned, that I lived in, um, I've been out of the house for four years, and now I'm using it as a rental. But if I sell that house, do I have to pay capital gains tax on the profit? And in this case, it was going to be like $100,000 profit. Um, so they've been out of the house four years. Well, well, Ryan, the, the rule on this is um, there is an exemption for individuals of $250,000 and for married couples of $500,000 for capital gains on your primary residence. Um, but you have to have lived in the house two of the last five years. So in this case, this person has been out of the house for four years, but they've lived in it one of the last five years. Mm-hmm. Well, the good news is they prorate that exemption. So that exemption, you know, two of the last five years, if you've lived in it one of the last five years, you'll get half the exemptions, what it boils down to when they do the math. Um, So half of $500,000, $250,000. So this person's profit will be tax-free if they sell it after four years. Um, So that's the good news. So even if you haven't lived in it for for three, four, even, you know, four and a half years, you might still have enough exemption left to be able to avoid capital gains on selling, say, a rental property that you used to live in. So uh, something to keep in mind. And I also see people sometimes that will move into the rental property 
live in it for a year or two before they sell it to avoid capital gains. So that's another way that you can you can do that. So it kind of opens the door. It's a great tool to use if you do rental properties or if you move around and, and you know, keep a house um, to avoid capital gains. So great question yeah. of the week. Good good topic. A lot of people own rentals here in Augusta with military, and so good to know. And obviously with any tax situation, it's always good to talk with the CPA uh, before you do anything. Absolutely. All right. And that brings us up here to our next topic, and that is how to navigate 529 plan withdrawals. Those are college savings plans. And, um, yeah, this is a very recent article out of um, – uh, out of bottom line personal, um, Bill Biscoff, uh, recently, but Ryan, you know, 529 plans, they are a great and a popular tool for education savings. Um, and you know, it's, it's, they're tax free when you take the money out and you use it for education. Um, however, it can be a little tricky and a little painful when you start taking money out if it's not done correctly. Um, and not all withdrawals are qualified withdrawals, meaning they won't mm-hmm. be tax-free. So, And there can be some nasty tax consequences if the withdrawals are not qualified or you don't handle the distribution and the filing, uh, the tax filing correctly. So if you're among the millions that have invested in these you know, tax-favored, tax-free um, 529 college savings plans for the benefit of your child or grandchild, it may be finally time to take out some money and you know, while putting money in the plan is easy and uh, is very simple, taking it back out is where it gets a little bit tricky. So the question is, how do you get the money out without taxes and penalties? Or what are your options for, for taking money out? How can you do that most efficiently? Um, and of course, you know, the withdrawals, um, qualified withdrawals are taken out for the beneficiary's education expenses are tax-free. And that's a terrific benefit. So you definitely want to use them if you can. A lot of times you also get a tax, you get a state income tax deduction when you put the money in as well. Um, And it also comes out state income tax free. However, um, not all the withdrawals are qualified. So there can be some unexpected tax consequences. So here are some of the most common questions we get about 529 plans and the answers to those that you'll need to be aware of. Yeah, so the first are, you know, what are my withdrawal options? So you can have a withdrawal check issued in the name of the account beneficiary, the student, or check that can be issued to the name of the college. Alternatively, you can have the check issued in your name as the account owner or plan plan participant. Um, That would be you, unless the account was funded with money from your child or grandchild's uh, custodial account, in which case it can only be made out to the student. If the money from the withdrawal will go to the account beneficiary, then the check made out to him or her, the beneficiary can be signed can can then sign the check over to you so you can control how it's spent. Right. Yeah. And so if you're keeping the withdrawal for yourself to reimburse, you know, yourself for education expenses, um, you want to have the check made out to you, you know, of course. Um, but following this advice, you know, it, it will make it easier for the tax consequences that we're going to talk about here in a minute um, to kind of follow the money. However, you know, my best suggestion for keeping it simple, Ryan, is to always have the check sent directly to the college or the education institution, if at all possible. Um, if you do that, that way, it's always going to be reported to the IRS as a qualified distribution 
Um, you'll not have any problems filing it that way on your tax return. The 1099Q that you get from the uh, from the 529 plan is going to have that designated correctly on it, and it will it'll be a lot easier filing your taxes. So I'd always send it to the financial institution if you can directly. If you have to send it to yourself, then you're going to have to you know keep some good documentation, and you're going to have to make sure you file your taxes correctly because it can come back to haunt you. If you like it did for me, if you uh, if you don't have filed exactly right on your taxes. Um, so that's my best advice. Um, so, you know, does it matter, though, where the money that funded the account came from? The answer is yes, it does. Um, you're not allowed to keep the withdrawal from 529 account if it was funded with money from a custodial account that was set up. Um, for the 529 accounts beneficiary, you know, for your child or grandchild. Um, in that situation, any money taken out of the 529 account belongs to the, the child, um, can only be withdrawn for their benefit, um, such as buying a, a car or, you know, paying for education expenses, of course, or for some other, you know, health and maintenance and welfare of the child. Um, so on the other hand, though, if you funded the 529 plan account with your own money, then the money in that account actually belongs to you. You're the owner of the money, and you can take a withdrawal for any reason you want, you know, made out to yourself. And, you know, that said, you got to be aware of the tax implications. And so if it's used for college, which hopefully it is, some kind of education, you want to make sure that's documented well and it's filed correctly on your tax return. Um, it's a little tricky. You, you can mess that up easily. And so the real big question here is what does the IRS know? So, you know, for the, so let's say for any year in which a 529 account withdrawal is taken, the plan must issue a form 1099Q. So that's payments from a qualified education uh, programs. You know, by February 1 of the following year, if the withdrawal check is made out to the 529 account beneficiary or the college for the benefit of the beneficiary, the 1099Q um, comes to the beneficiary. If the check is made out to you as the account owner, the 1099Q comes to you. Either way, the IRS is going to get a copy. So the feds know that the withdrawal was taken and there's uh, there may be a tax consequence for you. So when withdrawals exceed adjusted qualified education expenses, all parts of the withdrawn earnings will be taxable. Uh, this little known truth can be an unpleasant surprise for you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, when you break down the 1099Q, I mean, there's basically three boxes here that they list in this article, there's box one that shows the amount that was the total amount that was taken out. There's box two that shows the the uh, amount of that that was the earnings on the account that would be taxable if it wasn't qualified. And then there's box three that shows the amount that uh, is your basis or your contributions to the account that's always tax free. So box three is always going to be tax free. Box two is the part that you're you're hoping will be tax free. <laughs> if it's a qualified expense. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, if college costs, although are incurred, um, withdrawals taken in that year are always federally income tax-free, right? That's the question that, you know, a very common question is it, it's all tax-free no matter what, right? Um, um, but unfortunately, no, the answer is no. Um, you know, some or all the withdrawals um, in, the, in the account earnings might be taxable depending on whether or not the sources of the education funding that you had for college. What are the sources of, for the funding? Um, <clears throat> withdrawing earnings are always going to be um, federal income tax free when the 
the total withdrawal for the year doesn't exceed the the beneficiary's qualified education expenses. So as long as the education expenses are higher than the earnings that were taken out and the well the withdrawal the total withdrawal, then you should be good as long as it's filed correctly. Um, you know, adjusted education expenses though they equal the tuition and the related fees plus room and board. Um, and if the student has at least a full-time load, um, at least half of a full-time load, that is. Plus, there's books, there's supplies, any school-related special needs services. But then they, they subtract out, you know, any Pell Grants, any tax-free scholarships, fellowships, tuition, discounts, um, veterans' educational assistance. So, you know, and then they also subtract out any costs that are covered from a tax free employer education assistance sometimes you know you get you get additional help from your employer um, through the american opportunity and lifetime learning tax credit as well um so they take all those anything you got any benefit you got that went toward education comes out of the number and then that remaining number is what is considered a qualified education expense so if your withdrawal doesn't exceed that number you're good if your withdrawal exceeds that number that's where you have to worry. So you mm-hmm. have to be a little bit careful there and do some math before you start taking withdrawals out. Just saying, oh, you know, tuition's $20,000. I can take, you know, $20,000 out, you know, for this year. Um, you need to look at all the math of, of what went into paying for that education before you start taking big withdrawals. Exactly. <clears throat> and so let's clarify this, but let's look at an example. So your daughter has a 55000 of college expenses, Okay. She receives 30000 in tax-free scholarships and tuition discounts, so her adjusted education expenses are only $25,000. Um, you take a $55,000 withdrawal from that 529 account, which includes $10,000 of earnings. So you use the money to cover the $25,000 of education expenses, plus transportation expenses, pizza, of course, incidentals, uh, a, car, um, a car to reward your daughter for all the free money she got, um, so because the $25,000 of education expenses is only 45% um, percent of the 529 account withdrawal, only that percentage of the withdrawn earnings, or $4,545, is federal income tax-free. The remaining $5,455 of withdrawn earnings is taxable and should re- be reported on your return. Um, depending on your daughter's overall tax situation, the tax hit on the 5455 uh, may be a little or nothing or taxed at 10 to 12% federal tax rate. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, you just got to make sure, again, you know, that you um, that the amount you take out um, doesn't exceed the qualified expenses. Yeah. Um, you know, and you can have the check made out in the child's name, and then it can be signed over to you for control or you can have the check issued directly to the institution for the child's benefit. And that's really the way to do it. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I would highly recommend you try to get those checks going directly to the institution yeah. rather than coming to you or going to your ch- child because it makes it so much cleaner and simpler when it comes to following your taxes. Um, so, um, yeah. And then the last question is, you know, can I take withdrawals to cover my own education expenses as a parent? And the answer is yes. I mean, if the 529 plan was funded with your own money, um, then certainly in that case, you simply designate yourself as a new account of beneficiary. Um, you can take the federal income tax, uh, out, you know, tax free, uh, of federal income tax 
the withdrawal um, to cover those qualified education expenses. If you decide to go back to school, of course, you know, those withdrawals, if they're used for anything other than qualified education, then you're going to pay ordinary income tax on the earnings as well as a 10% penalty on the earnings. So you want to make sure this is used for education, if at all possible. And sometimes I run into parents that have extra money left into a plan that they, they had left over from their kids. They didn't use it all, or maybe they got scholarships. And I'd love to see them keep that for maybe grandchildren, you know, yeah. or you can change the beneficiaries. That's the great thing. You can roll that money down to other beneficiaries and, uh, you know, and just let it continue to grow for years and years and years. So, um, yeah, I would leave it in the plan if at all possible and, and just, you know, you know, use that instead of other money you would have contributed toward grandchildren um, if you have money left over. So uh, yeah. it gets a little tricky taking money out. But um, it's they're great plans. You want to use them. Just got to be careful how you take the money out. Exactly. Very flexible. But with any tax advantage account, you just want to make sure you understand it before you open one up. So it's always good to talk with someone before you make that decision. Absolutely. Okay. And that brings us to our last thing for the show. And that is your prescription of the week. And your prescription is to set up a credit freeze on your credit with the three credit reporting agencies. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but there's ex, there's Equifax, there's Experian, there's TransUnion. And so if you set up a freeze with them, that's going to protect your credit from anybody as accessing your credit. So they can't open new credit card accounts or anything else, any other account that accesses your credit file. And then you can go in and you can thaw your credit whenever you need to. Um, so whenever... Whenever you do need access to your credit, which is pretty rare because I, I froze hours probably 10 years ago, right? I've only had the thought maybe once over 10 years. So, you know, if you're not opening new credit card accounts, you're not going to need to thaw it. But then you, to thaw it, you'll just go online um, to their website and they give you a PIN. You enter that PIN, enter your password, of course, in the PIN, and you can thaw it for 24 hours. You can thaw it for a week. Um, there's different options for how you can do that. Um but, but yeah, we would certainly recommend that you freeze your credit, add that level of protection to your credit file. Um, then you're fully in control and you don't have to worry about anybody, you know, accessing your credit to open up a new account somewhere. So, yeah, there's a lot of fraud out there. So it's always good to have that extra level of protection. This is a pretty simple thing you could do uh, just to kind of help uh, alleviate any future headaches. Absolutely. All right. Well, that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Check us on our website, moneymd.net. Send us your questions or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706 739 0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor.